Welcome to Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca/podcast. We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We continue our Track 1 readings for Proper 23, the Sunday closest to October the 12th. Our Track 1 readings from the Book of Job. The Epistle reading as we started last Sunday from Hebrews and Track 2's Amos and Mark pairing along with properly accompanying psalms. You will recall that Job will endure three rounds of dialogues with his friends who, after having sat in silence for seven days at his dilemma, open their mouths and open them they do. I take the view that the rounds which constitute the largest block in the book of Job, that the rounds are not static or repetitive rehearsals of set views, but rather that initially Job is counseled by his friends to rely and trust on his innocence. This is particularly clear in the speeches of Eliphaz and Bildad. However, frustrated at his passionate responses to this counsel, they become increasingly hostile and accusatory. Round three, where we find ourselves today, shows the friends sputtering and running out of gas. Zophar, the third friend, has nothing to say at all. While Job remains vigorous in his defense and indeed begins appealing to the wisdom the friends had previously extolled, but now in his own defense and on his own behalf. Our discourse from Job for today demonstrates his resolution. For him, this isn't a matter of sparring with debaters. Rather, it has to do with his own flesh and blood standing before God and with God himself. Job knows and insists his is a matter for God and God alone. And we must now wait only a short time for God to speak up after one last valiant effort from the young and impatiently so Elihu. The choice of Psalm 22 lines up nicely with Job as it gives indication of what abandonment by God feels like existentially. The psalmist is famous for never shying away from speaking forth his or her anguish and presenting it in detail before God. God is named as the source of this abandonment, but he is named and addressed It is his ear the psalmist speaks to, and for his hand 
that the psalmist waits in full vent of pain when that is the fate. As we saw last week in Hebrews' use of this same psalm, known for its use by the Son of God at the moment of his abandonment and his shared experience with the psalmist before him, it is a psalm whose final victorious voice is a voice of praise and the transmission of praise to brothers and sisters in the great congregation. And this will be Job's final fate as well, though the journey there will cost him everything indeed. He will show that, yes, a mortal can serve God for his own sake, and with that, Satan will be silenced, his false claims defeated, and his hands stayed. The path Job walks, the Son of God will walk too, but for each and every one of us and for our sakes. The type of Job will find its fuller anti-type and accomplishment mirrored in and anticipated by what Karl Barth called Job's witness to Jesus Christ. This is one of our Sundays where the remarkable fit accomplished by the lectionary choice of Old Testament reading in Tract 2, I think, needs to be underscored. Read or listen to Amos chapter 5, the selection for this Sunday, carefully in conjunction with Mark and the story that we have for this Sunday, the story of the rich man called Young, the rich young man by Luke, and a ruler by Matthew, though here in Mark's rendition, the rich man is not young, but an adult with great estates. As he says, he has kept the commandments from his youth. Mark's story cannot help but evoke pity and sympathy for the rich man and the path he refuses to take. He is asked to give up all, but in exchange for a treasure that will last forever following the man at whose feet he has thrown himself. And he says instead, no, shocked and distressed, and by some renderings of this Greek verb, angered, scornful or bitter at Jesus' request of him. To read Amos as a lens on the passage produces a far more piercing take on what happens and on the rich man before us. The one who reproves in the gate is Jesus Christ. He is the one who speaks truth. And as Amos records, the reaction to him is hatred and abhorrence. The charges leveled by Amos are rank disregard for the poor, trampling, stealing, afflicting, appropriating, and by these means acquiring great wealth and houses built of hewn stones. 
Amos counsels, seek the Lord, the Lord Jesus, hate evil, love the good. Good teacher, the rich man says in address to Jesus. Establish justice in the gate. It may be, as we see in Mark, that the Lord God will be gracious. Though coming from different contexts, Amos and Mark have measures of overlap. Jesus says, God alone is good. And though this has been the source of theological discussion in the history of interpretation, in what way is God good but not Jesus? What we know rather for sure is that Jesus shows himself here as always in Mark's gospel, his clear, heart-searching and heart-seeing self, just as he is with his disciples and with all those he encounters he looks at this man and loves him. He is the gracious and good Lord God himself in his address to men and women. To call him good apart from this divinely given role and mission needs clarification about the true source of goodness and how Jesus is a teacher whose goodness is capable of penetrating into the very recesses of our needs and our needs at time for life-giving correction. Another small feature that lines up with Amos and other Old Testament realities, Jesus produces the second table of the Decalogue, the first capable of summary as God alone God alone is good, and though thou shalt not covet, can be taken to spill out and over from illicit desire and into action. Here Jesus, in his summary of the Decalogue, the second table, speaks of the last commandment as thou shalt not defraud. And defraud is dishonesty and illicit desire, not just in thought, but in action. Defrauding is akin to Amos' catalog, trampling the poor, afflicting, appropriating, and by this means gaining grand estates. In Amos' language, houses of hewn stones with levies of grain and pleasant vineyards. When Jesus says one thing is missing, his heart-piercing eye, like that of Amos, sees something so deeply amiss that his love requires its excision. In Amos's language, seek good and not evil, and the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, the good Lord, just as you have said when you called me good and in so doing were calling on God himself. Again, in Amos' language, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of hosts is here and is here ready to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger because of his vast love. And Jesus looks on him and loves him. Sadly, the one who ran and threw himself at Jesus' feet 
will just as surely walk away. What is never too much for God, as Jesus says to the disciples, can all the same be rejected by a heart loaded with rich distractions. Our epistle reading from Hebrews brilliantly reinforces this lesson. The Word of God, that is, the Word of the Scriptures and of Jesus Christ in the flesh, pierces into our deepest recesses. All are naked and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And yet, this piercing is the piercing of Jesus seen in love. And in that sense, as Hebrews speak so clearly, we have a great high priest always ready for our approach to him. Seek the Lord and live. Let us, therefore, draw near to the throne of grace, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace, the grace extended to the rich man and to all of us to help in time of need. Job never relinquishes his quest for the God of his stricken heart, and so he is made glad by the measure of days he was afflicted and the years of adversity that he suffers. So teach us to number our days means nothing less than God's love is always the number of our days when we surely entrust ourselves to him in hope and in faithfulness. To conclude, the minor notes of life are numbered and limited, and this is what makes the major notes so resplendent in God's symphony of love and mercy and forgiveness for us. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.